Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from AntiWar.com. This is Anti-War News for Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of AntiWar.com today. Russia warns the U.S. against enabling attacks on Crimea. So Russia's ambassador to the U.S., Anatoly Antonov, he warned on Sunday that Russia would consider a U.S.-backed Ukrainian strike on Crimea as serious as an attack on the Russian mainland. So Antonov's comments came in response to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan saying that the U.S. would not stop Ukraine from using American-provided weapons on Crimea, a statement that came after President Biden signed off on European countries delivering F-16s to Ukraine. So Sullivan told CNN that Crimea is Ukraine, despite the peninsula being under Russian control since 2014. Sullivan said, quote, We have not placed limitations on Ukraine being able to strike on its territory within its internationally recognized borders. What we have said is that we will not enable Ukraine with U.S. systems, Western systems to attack Russia, and we believe Crimea is Ukraine, end quote. So not restricting Ukrainian attacks on Crimea has actually been the U.S. position throughout the war. This isn't really anything new. Way back in July 2022, I asked the State Department if the HIMARS rocket systems that the U.S. just started, you know, providing them around that time. And they said that they could not use these rocket systems to target Russian territory. So I asked the State Department if that ban also applied to Crimea. And they told me Crimea is Ukraine. So that's basically what they were saying. So Antonov said that the U.S.'s unconditional approval of strikes on Crimea and the provision of F-16 fighter jets for Ukraine make it clear that the U.S. has never been interested in peace. And he said Russia will view strikes on Crimea as attacks on any other region in Russia and said that the U.S. should consider a potential Russian response. So Secretary of State Antony Blinken, out of all people, has acknowledged that Ukrainian attacks on Crimea are a red line for Russian President Vladimir Putin. But other U.S. officials have declared that the U.S. supports Ukraine striking Crimea, including Victoria Nuland. She said explicitly, you know, that we back, we support Ukrainian attacks on Crimea. She didn't just say, oh, they could use their weapons there. She said, yeah, we support that. Go for it. Um, So, uh, you know, just more escalation risk here. And, you know, Putin has shown that he is willing to significantly escalate the war in response to attacks on Crimea back in October 2022 when the Kerch Bridge was blown up, the Crimean Bridge. uh, He began, you know, large scale airstrikes, missile and drone strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure. He wasn't doing that until then. So, you know, there's kind of this idea in in Washington, it seems like that, oh, we could keep pushing, keep pushing. Uh, We don't have to worry about much. But again, Putin has shown that he takes tax on Crimea uh, very seriously. And this next story here, you know, makes me doubt that the U.S. is really restricting Ukrainian use of NATO weapons on Russian territory. Ukraine-backed saboteurs launch 
cross-border raid in Belgorod. So Russian officials said Monday that a Ukrainian sabotage group launched a cross-border border range in Russia's Belgorod Oblast, and the governor of the region said that eight people were injured in the fighting. So according to Ukrainian officials and media outlets, the attack was carried out by Russian citizens who have volunteered to fight for Kiev, groups known as the Freedom of Russia Legion and the Russian Volunteer Corps. So both groups claimed on Telegram that they liberated a settlement inside Russia. Uh, Russia's TASS news agency reported on Monday, it was I think it was late Monday, Russia time, that the Russian military and security forces were still taking measures to uh, you know, f- eliminate the enemy, as they put it, to drive them out of Russian territory. So it sounded like the fighting might have still been going on. The Kremlin said that the attack was probably launched to distract to distract from Ukraine's loss of Bakhmut. So according to the Times of London, documents that surfaced on Discord allegedly leaked by uh, Jack Deshera showed that Ukraine had been planning to support Russian volunteer attacks on Russian territory and that the groups are armed with NATO equipment. Now, it's important to note, I think I say it later in this article, but these Russian groups, both of them, you know, they're part of the Ukrainian armed forces, part of the Ukrainian ground forces. So it's not like it's Russians inside Russia doing this. It's Russians who have been fighting in Ukraine, you know, going over the border and attacking. But again, this is according to the Times of London. I haven't seen this document specifically uh, elsewhere, but this is what they're reporting. And they said one of these Discord documents read, quote, Ukraine provides comprehensive support to Russian volunteers ready to liberate Russian territories from President Putin's tyranny by armed means. Such detachments are equipped with various qualitative types of NATO weapons. The personnel has passed respective training for usage of such weapons and has successful combat experience from various parts of the front line in Ukraine, end quote. So saying that they have NATO NATO weapons and NATO training, basically. And the Washington Post reported earlier this month that Discord leaks show that Zelensky proposed cross-border attacks inside Russia to seize villages during conversations in January. Uh, but that report did not mention, you know, using these Russians to, to carry this out. So a Ukrainian military intelligence spokesman told CNN that the Russian volunteers were part of the Ukrainian armed forces while they were in Ukraine, but claimed that they were acting independently in the raid. But the assault was timed with uh, a video that was released by Kirillo Budinov, who's the head of Ukraine's military intelligence. And he called, he, he released a video calling on Russian soldiers to surrender as this raid was going on. Uh, it's very clear, even just from other Ukrainian intelligence comments to the media, that they were you know, involved in this operation here. And the Russian Volunteer Corps, one of these groups that, that was mentioned, they previously took credit for a cross-border attack in Russia's Bryansk region that took place in March. And the Russian, the Russian Volunteer Corps is made up of Russian citizens who enlisted to fight for Ukraine in 2014, and it also includes veterans of the Azov battalions and uh, o- people that are openly uh, neo-Nazi. And this is according to you know, there's a lot of reporting to back this up. According to Unheard, elements of the Russian Volunteer Corps are overtly sympathetic to neo-Nazi ideology, and they praise Hitler on Telegram. 
According to Financial Times, the group's founder, Dennis Nikitin, is considered an extremist and has ties to neo-Nazis and white nationalists across the Western world. So this just seems very, uh, you know, insane to me that it looks like a group of uh, Nazis attacked Russia with NATO equipment, uh, you know, in this cross-border raid. And, you know, Western media has really downplayed this whole idea. And of course, they don't mention uh, the, the neo-Nazi elements of these pe- these groups. Uh, and it's just, it seems like, you know, this could be a really big deal. I mean, how is Russia going to respond to this? They kind of sounded measured on Monday, um, but that sometimes means that that's because they're planning some sort of big reaction, or maybe they're just focusing on dealing with the situation and then, uh, you know, planning a response after that. So again, and, and, you know, I saw reports, I saw things on Twitter and elsewhere that said that these guys had, you know, armored vehicles provided by NATO and, and not just, you know, guns, but, but things like that, like heavy equipment. And there's reports of tank fire. So, uh, you know, this is a hugely uh, provocative uh, operation that happened here you know, with the U.S. backing, really. Uh, so who knows what Russia is going to do in response. All right, the next one here, the Air Force Secretary says that F-16s will not be a game changer for Ukraine. So this is Frank Kendall, the U.S. Air Force Secretary. He said Monday that the provision of F-16 fighter jets to Kiev will give Ukraine's military an incremental boost, but said it would not be a game changer in the conflict. Kendall said, quote, the F-16 is a reasonable option for them for a whole bunch of reasons. It will give Ukrainians an increment of capabilities that they don't have right now, but it's not going to be a dramatic game changer as far as I'm concerned for their total military capabilities, end quote. So the U.S. announced on Friday that they would sign off on the Europeans delivering these F-16s, but there's still a long way to go before the planes reach Kiev. No countries yet have officially committed to sending their F-16s. And the current focus is on supporting training for Ukrainian pilots. Estimates vary significantly on how long it might take to train Ukrainian pilots. Some Pentagon officials said it could take up to two years. But Kendall said that he expects the Ukrainians only need a few months. He said, quote, everything we've done with the Ukrainians, they've shown a capacity to learn. I don't think I've ever seen more motivated individuals in terms of wanting to get into the fight and make a difference, end quote. So Kendall acknowledged that the West providing F-16s is seen by some as an escalatory act on our part. Russia has warned that sending the aircraft to Ukraine comes with colossal risks, and Biden dismissed that warning when he was asked about it. All right, the next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute, more long-term planning for the future of Ukraine. The West wants the relationship with Ukraine to follow the Israel model. So the U.S. and some of its NATO allies plan to increase weapons sharing and give additional security guarantees to Ukraine. Polish President Andrzej Duda told the Wall Street Journal that Western leaders were supportive of developing a relationship with Kiev, similar to the one between Washington and Tel Aviv. So Duda told the journal that President Biden discussed the idea of bolstering the ties with Ukraine to resemble those with Israel when he visited Poland earlier this year. So this was discussed by President Biden, apparently. 
And the Polish president claimed that the Israel model was gaining momentum and would potentially be an agenda item at the upcoming NATO summit in July. An unnamed White House official confirmed to the Wall Street Journal that an Israeli model emerged as a way to address the core of Ukraine's security interests, recognizing that it would not achieve NATO membership soon. Uh, the official continued that any agreement would be loosely based on Israel's security model. Duda and the American official noted that discussions were still ongoing. So this is all about the, you know, the conversations that NATO countries are having leading up to this uh, summit that's going to be held in Lithuania in July. And there, uh, you know, Kyle mentions again that Poland, the Baltic states, you know, the more hawkish members want to give Ukraine a concrete path to NATO membership. The U.S. and, and Germany and France aren't too keen on that, apparently. So, you know, this could be a potential compromise. And again, it does show this long-term planning. The story I went over last week said that the U.S. was preparing for a frozen conflict. And that story uh, said, you know, did say this was an option, was to give them an Israel-type deal. And Israel receives $3.8 billion in military aid each year from the U.S. And they receive a lot of, you know, political support from the U.S., of course, too. Um, but they technically don't have, you know, any kind of mutual defense uh, treaty with Israel. So I think that's kind of the idea. Give them all the support, but you know, don't go as far to give them the Article 5 style guarantee. So we'll see. I mean, something's gonna happen at that summit. It's not gonna be, it's not gonna be good. Uh, all right, let's see. Where was I here? Uh, the next one, China questions US sincerity on communication. So on Monday, China's foreign ministry questioned the US's sincerity and its calls for more communication and engagement with Beijing after President Biden said that he expected a thaw between the two nations. So this is Chinese Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning. She said, quote, China and the U.S. maintain necessary communication. However, now the U.S. says it wants to speak to the Chinese side while seeking to suppress China through all possible means and impose sanctions on Chinese officials, institutions, and companies. Is there any sincerity in and significance of any communication like this? End quote. So kind of saying what Chinese officials have been saying lately. And a point I've been making is that, you know, the U.S. is saying that they want to talk with China, but they are really pursuing some pretty aggressive policies, you know, with sanctions. And of course, with Taiwan, President Biden made his comments on Sunday during the final day of the G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan. He was also asked that if the U.S. was considering lifting sanctions on China's new defense minister to pave the way for more communication between the U.S. and Chinese militaries, he said the issue was under negotiation. So, I mean, hopefully they at least do that. That's some a step that if they were serious about communication, it's very I think it would be very easy to lift sanctions on China's defense minister. So Li Shengfu, Shangfu, he was appointed to his post in March. So he's the Chinese defense minister, and he was targeted with U.S. sanctions a few years ago when he was the head of China's equipment development department uh, and over China's purchase of Russian weapons. So the U.S. sanctioned him for that. And as he moved up the ladder, now he's the defense minister. The Chinese foreign ministry on Monday called for the U.S. to lift sanctions and take concrete actions to remove obstacles. All right, the next one here, this is from the South China Morning Post. Camp confrontation and Cold War mentality, China slams the G7 summit. So, of course, China was not happy with the G7 statements and communiques that called China out for all sorts of things. 
Um, and China's foreign vice minister, Sun Weidong, summoned ja- Japan's ambassador, uh, you know, over the summit just to, you know, express China's displeasure with it. Of course, uh, Japan was the host. And, uh, you know, it's not surprising that China has expressed that it was unhappy. And basically the idea is that they're saying, you know, you're using this summit to smear and attack China and you're all following along with the U.S., um, on these policies, although it didn't seem like the U.S. got many concrete, anything really concrete about other G7 countries joining in on kind of the economic, some of the economic stuff. Um, but they did definitely take aim at China in all their statements. And, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric flying around uh, against the Chinese. All right. So the next one here. Sorry, this is just a little slow. All right, the next one, the U.S. and Papua New Guinea, they finally ink that military deal I've been going over. So this was on Monday that the U.S. and Papua New Guinea signed a new military pact and and a surveillance agreement, and they signed this while Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited the Pacific Island nation as part of the administration's strategy against China, and Blinken uh, went in place of Biden, who canceled the trip. So a State Department spokesperson said that the Defense Cooperation Agreement will replace an outdated status forces agreement between uh, the two countries. Details of this military deal have not been released, but we know that Papua New Guinea officials have said that it will give the U.S. military access to ports and airports, which could lead to the U.S. building bases. So PNG Prime Minister James Marape, he said Sunday that his country should expect to see a steady increase in the presence of U.S. troops and contractors over the next 15 years. He said, quote, how many soldiers we are looking at, how many contractors we are looking at, I do not have that scope today, but there will certainly be an increased presence and a more direct presence of U.S. in our country, end quote. So the separate surveillance agreement will allow the U.S. Coast Guard to patrol the exclusive economic zone of Papua New Guinea, which extends 200 nautical miles from the nation's coast. Blinken said at a joint press conference with uh, the Papua New Guinea's leader that the purpose of the surveillance agreement is to help combat illegal fishing, basically. But I'm sure, you know, securing that access, the U.S. has a lot more in mind. And we know that the deals with Papua New Guinea and other efforts for the U.S. to expand in this region is uh, part of preparations for future war with China. And, you know, that's not hyperbole or anything. We know that because that's what U.S. military officials are saying. Uh, there's this quote from General Kenneth Wilsbach, who's the commander of U.S. airport. Sorry, he's the commander of U.S. Pacific Air Forces. He told Nikkei Asia recently, quote, obviously we would like to disperse in as many places as we can to make the targeting problem for the Chinese as difficult as possible. A lot of those runways where we operate from are in the Pacific Island nations, end quote. So I would say that the Pacific Island nations should take note of that and that, you know, they will become potential targets in a future war if they, you know, let the U.S. or, you know, build bases on their territory. All right, so the next one here, this is from Connor Freeman over at the Libertarian Institute. U.S. arms makers are price gouging amid the Ukraine war. 
So American military industrial complex firms are guilty of price gouging. According to former Pentagon insiders, these accusations come amidst Washington's exponentially rising demand for weapon systems to both bolster Taiwan and to support NATO's proxy Kiev during its war with Russia. So the Ukraine policy of providing massive quantities of arms, no matter the expense in particular, is weakening America's national security and combat readiness by depleting stocks, which cannot be easily replenished due to the weapons firm's skyrocketing prices, according to the former officials. And this is a guy named Shay Assad, who worked as a contract negotiator at the Defense Department. And he talked about this during a recent uh, interview with 60 Minutes, uh, which you can go check out. It's very interesting. So uh, just one quote from him I'll read here. He said, quote, the gouging that takes place is unconscionable. There's no doubt about it. You can you just can only buy so much because you only have so much money. And that's why I say, is it really any different than not giving a Marine enough bullets to put in his clip? It's the same thing. End quote. So according to Assad, the DOD overpays for radar and missiles, helicopters, planes, submarines down to the nuts and bolts. Um, and it, this report mentioned that the Stinger missiles, which are produced by Raytheon, they cost uh, 25000 in 1991, and they are now priced at more than $400,000. So um, again, you should go check out the 60 Minutes report. It's interesting to see. And one of the things that was included in the 2023 NDAA was basically giving what they are calling... Uh, wartime procurement powers to the Pentagon, which basically gets rid of other, um, you know, ways that would keep prices down. Uh, I forget exactly what uh, is involved there, but I know that, you know, kind of the negotiating a price down that, that goes on between the Pentagon and these contractors, I think they've eliminated another form of that. So the prices are just going to keep going up. You know, they're, they're allowing non-competitive contracts and things like that. So we should just expect to see more of this price gouging. All right, the next one here, the U.S. military posts pictures of bunker-busting bombs. So the U.S. military posted pictures online this month of a powerful bunker-busting bomb that could destroy Iran's nuclear facilities it has built deep underground. The publication of the pictures is seen as a veiled threat as it comes amid soaring tensions between the U.S. and Iran. And according to the Associated Press, the pictures were only briefly briefly online on May 2nd. And they were so they were posted on May 2nd, and it looks like they were removed pretty quickly because apparently they revealed sensitive information about the bomb, which is the GBU 57, known as the Massive Ordnance Penetrator. So the pictures were posted on the Facebook page of the Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, which houses a fleet of B-2 bombers the only U.S. aircraft that is capable of carrying the heavy, massive ordnance penetrator. So, the, the, you know, the U.S. has done similar things amid heightened tensions with Iran. In 2019, the U.S. military posted a video of a B-2 bomber dropping two of these GBU-57 bombs. The U.S. also often deploys bombers to the Middle East to send a message to Tehran when tensions are high. They fly bombers, you know, on round trips over there, although they typically send B-52s, not the B-2 for that. So AP also reported that Iran's new underground nuclear facility that they're currently building might be deeper than these American 
bunker-busting bombs can reach. So this is only based on satellite images. I'm not sure exactly how they can tell, but they're claiming that, you know, according to expert analysis of satellite pictures, looking at these facilities Iran is building, they could be between 260 and 328 feet underground. And the U.S. Air Force has said that this GBU-57 can penetrate facilities 200 feet underground, so it could be out of reach. And, you know, Iran has good reason to want to build their facilities that deep because the U.S. kind of made this bomb to to destroy them. And U.S. and Israel are always threatening uh, Iran's nuclear facilities. And they've actually built more facilities underground, you know, following Israeli sabotage attacks on its civilian nuclear program. Israeli officials also often threaten to take more overt military action. They're basically threatening to bomb Iran. But Israel does not have bombs like this, and they also do not have the aircraft that are capable of carrying them. So that's the question. Could Israel really pull something off an attack on Iranian nuclear facilities without U.S. support? Uh, It doesn't seem like they can. Uh, But, you know, just another sort of unnecessary, silly provocation from the U.S. uh, during these heightened tensions with Iran. Uh, But that's it for the news. Um, Oh, actually, sorry, we have one more story here. This is from The Cradle. It says that Armenia is ready to recognize Azeri sovereignty over Nagorno-Karabakh. So this is a significant uh, development here. It seems like I haven't been following, you know, the tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan too closely recently since the Nagorno-Karabakh war, you know, in 2020. Um, And Nagorno-Karabakh is an ethnic Armenian enclave that are in, you know, the so-called internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan. So they both claim it, and there is a war over it. You know, it's sort of a frozen conflict since the the 1990s. And Azerbaijan took more territory around there, and then they agreed to a ceasefire. Since then, though, there's been flare-ups, and there's been a lot of tensions. But now Armenia's prime minister is saying that, uh, you know, he's ready to recognize Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan if Azeri authorities can guarantee the security of the region's predominantly ethnic Armenian population. Uh, So that seems like a significant development again, but uh, so we'll see how it plays out if they can uh, reach a deal. All right, that's it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from John V. Walsh on the Durham report, one from Ron Paul, Biden's running out of Ukraine money. Good. (laughs) Uh, One from Tarek S. Hajaj, collateral damage, the human cost of Israel's recent assault on Gaza, that's over at Mondo Weiss. One from Caitlin Johnstone at her uh, website. Biden okays F-16s for Ukraine, U.S. weapons to attack Crimea. One from Ryan McMacken over at the Mises Institute. Thanks to sanctions, the U.S. is losing its grip on the Middle East. That is it uh, for me for today. You could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Or you can share the show, like and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you feel like watching it. Uh, and you could listen to the audio version and leave reviews and all that good stuff. Um, I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.